Please open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. So we are going to be looking at verses 3 to 5 today. Uh, So we're picking up the pace week by week. Four words, then two verses, now three verses. And so still early in our sermon series through Genesis, but thus far we've already learned a whole lot. We've learned a whole lot about our God. We've learned from Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 that our God is eternal, that there, he always was. There's never a time before him that in the beginning, before the beginning was God. He's eternal. He's almighty. He created the heavens and the earth by the word of his power. Our God is transcendent. You know, he's completely other. There's an infinite distance between our God and his creation, an infinite distance between our God and, and us, his, his creatures. He's transcendent, and yet he's imminent, and he's personal. That he desires that we would know him and love him and have a personal relationship with him. And yet he's also self-sufficient. That our God is not in any way lacking. He doesn't need anything. And he's also immutable which means that he does not change and he is unable to change. And this eternal, almighty, transcendent, imminent, self-sufficient, immutable God created the heavens and the earth supernaturally by the word of his power. We've also learned that the original creation was formless and void and dark, but that would not be Uh, for very long because the the Spirit of God is there hovering over the waters in verse 2, ready for the week of creation. And our triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. See, yes, there's God the Father. See very clearly there in Genesis 1-1, we see God the Spirit hovering hovering over the waters in the darkness in verse 2. But but also God the Son was there. We know this from John chapter 1, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And all things that are made were made through him. And we're going to see in our passage today, and God said. And God said, which is a refrain repeated over and over again throughout Genesis 1. So our triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, takes that original creation and brings light. And brings order. And brings fullness to that which is dark and formless and void. And we're going to see today... What happens on day one, we're specifically studying verses three to five, but but I'm going to read from verse one through verse five. And so hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, life-giving word. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. This is the word of the Lord. And it's absolutely true. It's given to us in love and for our good. And so we're going to look at this first day. Okay, under, under two headings, but I'll tell you, this is a different type of sermon than I, than I normally preach, because the, 
the first half, maybe even the first two-thirds of the sermon, is going to be under the heading, an introduction to the days of creation. And then, secondly, we're going to look at day one. Okay, so if you're watching, it's not a longer sermon than normal, I, I don't think. I mean, we'll see where, where the Spirit takes us here. But, I, but the first heading is longer than normal. Okay, introduction to the days of creation. Then we're going to look at day one. So first, introduction to the days of creation. And there were lots of ways that I could um, you know, attempt to, to go at this and where to begin. I wrestled very hard with this. And, and it was funny, I... Um, of all the possible questions that I somewhat anticipated after the first service, people were asking me about dinosaurs, and I'm not even sure why that came up today, okay, but anyway, people started thinking about dinosaurs. You can come ask me, I, I mean, I'm, half, I'm flexible on dinosaurs, just whatever it's worth, okay. All right, introduction to the days of creation. Let's begin here. Many Christians feel like they have to choose between believing the Bible believing it's authoritative, infallible, inerrant, or taking science seriously. That many people think they've got to choose between the two, but that's a false choice. Okay, there's not a conflict between an accurate, accurate's key, an accurate reading, an accurate understanding of the Bible, and an accurate understanding of science. Okay, so students and professionals in the various scientific fields, you don't have to choose between having confidence in your Bible as God's Word and an appreciation for and even love for science. Right? When or if you sense that conflict, it's almost always going to be because of some statement from someone who doesn't believe in God, doesn't love God, doesn't love the Bible, and therefore has an agenda or it comes from someone misreading and misunderstanding the, what the Bible actually says and means, or a combination of both. But the choice between having confidence in your Bible and an appreciation and affinity and a love and a gifting in science, okay, it's not a false, that's a false choice. That you can have full confidence in the authority, inerrancy, and infallibility of the Bible, and you can have a life in the sciences. You can make great contributions in the various fields of science. Okay, you really can. Uh, this next quote is from Dr. John C. Lennox, who's a professor of mathematics emeritus at Oxford. Not in Oxford, Ole Miss, but at the Oxford, okay, where Andy Young is planting a thing against Ole Miss, okay, um, but uh, different Oxford, okay. And Dr. Lennox, I like what he says, I think it's helpful. And I'll let you know, he, like other people that I'll quote today and even during our whole study of Genesis, he and I do not have the same view of the days of creation. But listen to what he says. Now, all true scientists are aware, of course, that science is not infallible. Theories change. We Christians need to remind ourselves of two dangers. First, we must, be, must beware of tying our exposition of scripture so closely to science that the former falls if the latter changes. Secondly, we will be very unwise to ignore science through obscurantism or fear and thus present to the world an image of Christianity that is anti-intellectual. No Christian has anything to fear from true science, 
Many Christians have made and continue to make first-rate contributions to science. Now, while we never have to fear true science, I actually do not think we should tie our exposition of Scripture to science at all if tying our exposition of Scripture to science means that we feel the burden to adjust and tweak and, and squeeze our interpretation of Scripture so that it lines up with the latest, greatest scientific theory. Rather, I think we should remember John Calvin's advice that the inerrant scriptures are to be the, the spectacles, the glasses, the lens we wear in order to read the natural world, to interpret and understand science correctly. So rather than adjust our understanding of scripture to match up with science, we should evaluate scientific theories in light of what we know to be true from an accurate reading of Scripture. Okay, many of you know that in 1633, Galileo was wrongly accused of heresy by the church because he believed and taught that the earth uh, revolves around the sun. And many in the church believed that at that time, the earth was the center of the universe. Well, the church didn't believe that because the Bible was wrong. They were simply reading their Bibles wrongly. So it's important that we read our Bibles well and that we use our Bibles correctly, faithfully, responsibly to, to be the, the spectacles, the lens, the glasses by which we, we view and we interpret and we understand God's world. See, put another way, we can know many true things about the world around us from careful, thoughtful, responsible observation and experimentation. And that's true whether we're Christians or non-Christians. Okay, so for example... You know, I, I'm a type 1 diabetic. I've been a diabetic almost my whole life, since I was a little boy. And so from time to time, I have to go find a new doctor, a new endocrinologist. When I'm looking for an endocrinologist, I don't interview them to see if they're Christians. Okay, I mean, that would be cool, okay, if they were, you know, if they, and that's great if they are. Wonderful, we can pray for each other, and what, that's wonderful. Okay, but what I want to know is, do they understand my disease? And my body and my pancreas, my endocrine system, do they, do they, are they up to date with the, the therapies and the treatments that I need to manage this chronic disease? Right? Non-Christians can be really, really, really excellent and extraordinary at so many things in this world by God's common grace. And through their own efforts and observation and experimentation and training and hard work and dedication, etc. But... Our knowledge of the world around us, at least to some extent, and often even to a profound degree, is limited, distorted, or even just plain wrong without the light of Scripture. Therefore, we have to be aware that not everything labeled objective science or settled science is actually settled or objective at all. I mean, there's often an agenda that goes along with it, a worldview that one is pushing, that a group is pushing. I shared part of this quote last week, but I'll, I'll look at the, we'll share a fuller quote of it now. It's from um, Aldous Huxley, the author of Brave New World, one of the uh, 20th century's leading atheists. And listen to this admission, this confession that he makes in his autobiography. He says, for myself, as no doubt for most of my contemporaries, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation 
The liberation we desired was simultaneously liberation from a certain political and economic system and liberation from a certain system of morality. I had motive for not wanting the world to have a meaning. Consequently, assumed that it had none and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. The philosopher who finds no meaning in the world is not concerned exclusively with a problem in pure metaphysics. He's also concerned to prove that there's no valid reason why he personally should not do as he wants to do, or why his friends should not seize political power and govern in the way that they find most advantageous to themselves. For myself, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation, sexual, and political. He says, I I had an agenda. I wanted to believe certain things, so that's what I pushed, that's what I looked for. And so we need to be aware of the world's agendas. Okay, now, with all that said, and being confident that we've uh, barricaded and locked the doors in the back, let's briefly discuss the age of the earth, okay? I don't know how old the earth is. I don't know. I just saw somebody turn around and look. We really did not lock the doors. Okay, don't, don't, be, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. You, you can leave. Okay. All right. I don't know how old the earth is. I don't even know if I care that much how old the earth is. I mean, I know that the list of genealogies we have in the Bible don't take us back millions of years. And yet I know that science says the earth appears to be millions and millions of years old based on annual ice and rock layers and erosion and plate tectonics and so forth. Okay? With all that said, I agree with something that I heard my friend Todd Pruitt say. And I'm going to read this to you. And he is, he's our speaker at the men's retreat, so I'm not sure if this is an advertisement or a deterrent, okay, for you to come. But... I think it's helpful. Todd Pruitt says, the most intelligent, skilled biologists, astronomers, and geologists can try to determine the age of the earth, but if they operate on the presuppositions that there is no God, therefore creation was not supernaturally brought into being, and they reject that there was a sinful fall that profoundly impacted the entire created order, and if they deny there was a cataclysmic flood, of which every ancient civilization has an account, if they deny this flood, which the Bible tells us had a profound impact on the earth, if they deny all that, then they can try to calculate the age of the earth, but they're not going to get the right answer. I think another way to put it is that if someone is too smart to believe in the existence of God, who created the universe by the word of his power, And they're too smart to tell us how old the earth is. You see, Genesis 1 is a true, accurate, historical creation account. It's not written to be a science textbook, and we all know that. But it's also important we remind ourselves that Genesis 1 was not written to answer every question that every subsequent generation might try to bring to Genesis chapter 1. Now, with all that said... I mentioned, I don't know how old the earth is. I'll tell you this. I don't have trouble believing that God could have created a mature earth. Meaning, Adam and Eve were created as grown man, grown woman. 
So I find it easy to believe that God could have created a new earth that appeared to be old, that appeared to be mature. That's not hard for me to grasp. Okay, now what about the word day or yom in Genesis 1? Now, in my estimation, there are basically four common views about the length of days and the time in Genesis 1. Of course, there are more than four views, but I'm, I'm synthesizing them down to four. And obviously, I can't be you know, in, incredibly thoroughly uh, descriptive in these views and the time I have for one sermon, and I'm not going to come back and do it again in another sermon. Um, but I am going to try to be fair to each view according to my understanding. Okay, so first... There is the gap theory. So this theory proposes that there was a gap, though it's not anywhere explicitly mentioned in the Bible, but, but it proposes a gap between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. A gap between the period at the end of verse 1 and the capital T at the beginning of verse 2. And in this proposed mysterious gap of possibly millions or billions of years, the theory is that there was a primeval rebellion by Satan and his minions, and then the six-day creation week is a remaking of the earth after this rebellion. Now, as I preached last week, I believe Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then I believe that Genesis 2 gives us a description of the earth God created, that original creation, not after some gap, not after some rebellion, but that original creation, as God made it, ex nihilo, out of nothing, was without form and void, and it was dark. And then in the six days of creation, God brings light, and he brings form and order, and he brings fullness. The next view is the, called the day-age view. It argues that the Hebrew word yom, which is translated day throughout Genesis 1, represents an age or a long period of time or at least a period of time that's a lot longer than our 24-hour days. Now, this view is concerned with the scientific evidence, which the majority of scientists believe supports an old earth. You know, many Christians who hold this view believe the biblical account of creation in Genesis 1 is real history and not some allegorical or poetic account. And they believe Genesis 1 is not in conflict with today's scientific theories if they represents a long period of time possibly even millions of years, which could allow for the lengthy development of the geological record. Now, there are some examples throughout Scripture of Yom referring to longer periods of time than a single 24-hour day. But I will say more about Yom whenever I share with you my view of Genesis 1, which is not this view. Third, there's the framework hypothesis. This view understands Genesis 1 to be a poetic, literary presentation of creation which means Genesis 1 is not intended to be taken literally or even chronologically. So another way, this view holds that Genesis 1 is merely a, a poetic device, literary structure, allegory, metaphor, meant to convey the overall themes and truth of creation, but the six days are not literal days and not really even consecutive chronologically. Okay, now that brings us to the fourth view, and that's the regular day view. The days of creation in Genesis 1 are six 24-hour days, and that's my view. It's been pretty much the view of all Christians uh, up until about 150 years ago. Okay, now why, why is that my view? I'm so glad you asked. Thank you guys for asking. Okay, first, 
It's the view that comes from the straightforward reading of the text. Right? Genesis, including Genesis 1, is historical narrative. It's not poetry or allegory or poetic narrative or semi-poetic narrative, whatever that is, or poetic prose or even elevated prose. I mean, the, the most common element in Hebrew poetry is parallelism. Right, often where two consecutive lines, they say the same thing, but in, but in two different ways. Okay, like at the beginning of Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Parallelism. But that's not what we have in Genesis 1. That's not what we're going to see in, in our passage today. It's also true that Genesis 1, it, it doesn't read like a myth. I mean, it's very easy for you to go online and look up the, Babyla- the Babylonian creation myth, the Enuma Elish. You can read it for free. It's not that long. It's not that good, but it's not that long. And, but you'll see it reads like a myth. There's warring gods and fighting with monsters and dragons and so forth. But Genesis 1, it's not like that. It, it's, it's not poetry. It's not allegory. It's not myth. It's, it's historical narrative. It's a true, accurate, and historical creation account. And we'll talk more and more about this, but we need it to be. Theologian Gerhardus Voss says, If the creation history is an allegory, then the narrative concerning the fall and everything further that follows can also be allegory. Meaning, if we decide to make Genesis 1, or even part of it, not history not a true account of creation history, if we make it metaphorical, if we make it poetry, then what is to stop us from just picking and choosing which other parts of the Bible that we're going to take as metaphorical, allegorical? And that's what happens. Often people don't stop with Genesis 1. Additionally, and this is a bit technical, but we've already locked the door, so it's okay, uh, the, the, the Hebrew grammar of Genesis 1 is the vav consecutive plus an imperfect verb. So this is the grammar, common grammar of Old Testament historical narrative. So the vav consecutive shows up in our text as, translated as and. And this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and this happened. Like a story. Like a true story. Telling us what happened and what happened next. Because that's what it is. Right? Look, look at verses 3 to 5 in Genesis 1. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. See, it reads like a story. It's telling us this happened, and this happened, and this happened, and this happened. It, See, this is a real problem for the framework hypothesis because Genesis 1 reads like, exactly like historical narrative, friends, because that's what it is. Okay, then there's the numbering of the creation days and the evening and morning description, which identifies them as normal 24-hour days, like in verse 5. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. So a retired RTS professor, Richard Belcher, says... Whenever the word day is used in Scripture with a number, right, an ordinal number, first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, like what we see in Genesis 1, 
it always refers to a regular day. Even many who are proponents of progressive creationism and even the day-age view recognize that the, term, that the use of day with a number, which occurs over 200 times in the Bible, refers to a regular day. It also is also significant that whenever morning and evening are used together outside of Genesis 1, the reference is to a normal day. You see, Moses wrote Genesis, the Genesis 1 creation account is a true and accurate history, and that's why every biblical author in the Old Testament and the New Testament who looks back to Genesis 1 treats it like it's a true historical narrative. Because it is. I mean, that's, that's true in the book of Exodus and Isaiah and Jonah. It's true of Jesus and the Gospels. It's true in the book of Hebrews. It's true in the book of Revelation. The late pastor and evangelist, apologist Francis Schaeffer, who I don't think he and I agreed on our views of creation, says this, the mentality of the whole scripture is that creation is as historically real as the history of the Jews in our present moment of time. Both the Old and the New Testaments deliberately root themselves back into the early chapters of Genesis, insisting that they are a record of historical events. Okay, so there, there, were, there were a few, not many, but a few early church fathers who think differently about the days of creation than I do. There, there are a few commentators that I read each and every week preparing to preach Genesis to you who think differently about the days of creation than I do. I have a few friends in ministry who think differently about the views of creation than I do. But I think they're, they, they aim to be faithful brothers. I don't question their love for Christ, their love for his word, their love for the church. I believe they desire to be faithful even though I disagree with their views on Genesis 1. Okay, so, so how do we wrap this up? I think it's helpful to think about what commitments that we need to make as we study Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. So here, here are five. We must make every effort to read the Bible well and read the Bible faithfully. Not sloppily, but read the Bible well. Number two, we must not seek to mold our interpretations of the Bible to fit the ever-changing contemporary ideas and theories, right? Those ideas, they keep changing, right? Scripture is to be the spectacles, the lens, the glasses by which we view and evaluate the scientific theories, not taking the scientific theories and then trying to mold and squeeze Scripture to fit them. Number three, we must affirm the supernatural creation of the cosmos, and God said, spoke the world into existence, the universe into existence by the word of his power. And we must affirm the supernatural creation of Adam and Eve. Adam from the dust of the ground, Eve from Adam's rib. Must affirm this, their supernatural creation, that they're the first humans. There's no one before them. No humanoids evolving into them. But they were supernaturally created. And we also must affirm that Adam and Eve fell in sin. And as a result of the fall, death came. And Adam's sin was imputed to us. You see, all of this matters because if we don't affirm this, then the, the, the theological foundations of the gospel, they're, they're eroded. And they begin to crumble. I mean, think about what Paul writes in Romans 5, verse 12. 
Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Right? Or as Paul says in Ephesians 2, see, we were all born into this world dead, spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins. Then later in, Ephesians, in Romans 5, verse 15, Paul writes, But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, Adam's sin, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Right, as I said earlier, if the creation history is an allegory, then the narrative concerning the fall and everything further that follows can also be allegory. It becomes a big deal if the good news of the gospel is not real and is not true. So one last quote, and then we'll begin to look at the text. This is from Gordon Wenham. I think it's a helpful, helpful way to wrap this up. It says, the Bible versus science debate has, most regrettably, sidetracked readers of Genesis 1. Instead of reading the Bible as a triumphant affirmation of the power and wisdom of God and the wonder of his creation, we have been too often bogged down in attempting to squeeze Scripture into the mold of the latest scientific hypothesis or distorting scientific facts to fit a particular interpretation. When allowed to speak for itself, Genesis 1 looks beyond such minutia. Genesis 1, by further affirming the unique status of man, his place in the divine program, and God's care for him, gives a hope to mankind that atheistic philosophies can never legitimately supply. Okay, so that's the introduction to Days of Creation. Second heading, a brief look at day one. I know you're looking at your clocks. We're going to finish on time, most likely. Okay, so first, looking at verse 3. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God said, that phrase, it's repeated ten times in Genesis 1. That, that there, for the most part, there really is only one subject in all of Genesis 1, and it is God himself. It's what he's doing. And God said, and God said, over and over and over again. Creation comes by the voice of God, the word of his power. And what does he say? He says, let there be light. Right? The Latin Vulgate translation of this phrase is fiat lux. And that Latin translation is where the expression creation by fiat comes from. That God speaks and it's so. Let there be light and there was light. Pastor Richard Phillips says, the point is that creation is the sheer expression of God's will. God willed it, saying, let there be light, and it was so, and there was light. It's not like this was hard for God, right? He's almighty. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He's not straining to create, like what we read in the various creation myths. He just simply speaks. You know, last week I mentioned uh, C.S. Lewis's uh, The Magician's Nephew from the Chronicles of Narnia series about how Aslan, the Christ character, just sings creation uh, into existence. I think that's a very helpful way to realize what's happening here in Genesis 1 verse 3. The God just speaks. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. Just as easy as you can just sing, hum it, and it hums creation into existence. God said, let there be light, and there was light. Right, the earth was covered in darkness, but, but God shattered that darkness by merely speaking, let there be light. Now, maybe you're wondering, okay, what was this light? 
Well, this is day one, and I've got to admit, the sun, the text says, is not made until day four. So what do we do with that? Here's what I think. It's emphasizing that God himself is the ultimate source of light. That God himself is the ultimate source of light. I think this is a very helpful quote from Richard Phillips, Pastor Richard Phillips. He says, the sun is not the cause of light. God is the creator of light. Moreover, just as one would not create a musical instrument before sound itself had been made, it is entirely logical that God would make light on the first day before later making objects designed to shine and reflect that light. And guess what? It's not only here in Genesis 1 that we see light existing independent of the sun. We also see this in the last two chapters of the Bible, right? In the new heavens and the new earth, right? In Revelation 21, verse 23, we read, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Then the last chapter, Revelation 22, 5, and night will be no more, they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. So God said, let there be light, and there was light. The next thing we see is that God saw. Look at verse 4. And God saw that the light was good. So here we see God looking upon his creation, his handiwork, what he just spoke into existence, and God finds pleasure in it. And God saw that the light was good. The, the, the old Bible commentator, Matthew Henry, says, If the light is good, how good is he who is the fountain of light from whom we receive it? I think that's something we're not to miss as we move our way through Genesis chapter 1, right? The goodness of creation and most especially the goodness of our great God are on display in Genesis chapter 1. So God said, God saw, then we see that God separated. Look at the, the, the second half of verse 4. And God separated the light from the darkness. Now, and God said, repeats all throughout Genesis 1, well, the Hebrew verb translated separated in verse 4 shows up four more times in Genesis chapter 1. So a major theme or motif in Genesis 1 is God separating, God distinguishing, God differentiating to create order. Remember, the world was dark and formless and void. Now God's ordering things, and he's bringing fullness. See, in creation, there is separation toward order. Light from darkness, waters above from waters below, day from night, and the differentiation and distinction of mankind as male and female. And so God ordered the world in Genesis 1 with this work of separating and distinguishing one from the other. However... After the fall in the Garden of Eden, there will be a separation toward disorder. That man and woman will be spiritually separated from God. That man will then be, in a sense, separated from his wife as Adam blames Eve. Man, in a sense, is separated from the soil as thorns and thistles make work hard and toilsome. And then man is separated from, driven from the garden, all as a result of sin. And so we see that God, God said and God saw and God separates. And then lastly, we see that God sovereignly names. Look at verse 5. 
And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. So God names the light day, he names the darkness night. Right? The very act of, of naming was an act of sovereign dominion. Right? I mean, we know this, we do, that we do this. Right? We name our children, we, we name our pets. You know, maybe you name your car. I mean, I think it's weird, but maybe you name your car. You know, my, you know, my youngest daughter names her toys. Right? Why? Because they belong to us. We have authority over them. And so we named them. And in Genesis 2, God entrusts dominion and authority over the earth to Adam. Therefore, God lets Adam name the animals. And here, on day one of creation, God names the day and the night because he is the sovereign creator. Okay, so listen again to day one. Genesis 1, 3 to 5. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. Let me end with this. See, the first day began in darkness. But then God brings light. And, and that, that's the pattern or the paradigm for what God's been doing ever since. And the redemption of his people. That's how God has always saved sinners. That's how God still saves sinners today. I mean, if you're here in this sanctuary and you're a Christian, dear Christian, this is what has happened to you. That you were walking, living in darkness. And then God, by his grace, brought light. I mean, think about what the scriptures say all throughout Old Testament, New Testament. In Isaiah 9, verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Walking in dark. And, and who is this light? This light is Christ. Right? In John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In the very next chapter, in John 9, Jesus heals a man born blind. And the Pharisees are pressing this man who can now see for, for answers. Okay, who did this? How did this happen? We know who you are. You've always been blind there by the side of the road. So tell us how this happened. And the man says, all I know is that I was blind, but now I see. And that's the testimony, whether you know it or not, of every Christian. And the Apostle Paul, reflecting on all of this, and connecting what God does in the hearts and lives of, of, of the sinners that he saves, connecting that with what we just looked at in Genesis chapter 1, verse 3. Listen to what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I mean, there's been a whole lot that we've talked about today, and maybe, maybe it was clear, maybe it wasn't clear, maybe it was helpful, maybe you're mad at me, I don't know, but here's the deal. Don't miss this. Praise God that he is our creator, and praise God that whenever you and I, whenever we were living 
in the darkness of our sin, you brought light. Praise God that when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, that he brought life. We were raised to newness of life in Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for this true, accurate, historical account of creation in Genesis 1. Lord, help us to think rightly about your word. Help us to be faithful in all of our efforts to interpret it and to apply it to our lives. And Father, we thank you for your work of grace. Your work of grace that brought light into the darkness of our sinful hearts. We thank you for your work of grace that brought life where before there was only spiritual death because of our trespasses and sins. Lord, please impress these truths upon our hearts today. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.